The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. Today, we are thrilled to have Joe Andrew on the show. Joe is the global chairman of Denton's, the world's largest law firm, and the former chairman of the Democratic National Committee. He has had a three-decade legal career and has advised countless companies across the globe, and he's made a tangible social impact, among, among many other accomplishments. Joe, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Jack. Thanks for having me on. Joe, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing? Well, we're doing great. I have uh, in quarantine outside of Washington, D.C. with my uh, 25-year-old son and his girlfriend and then my 26-year-old daughter and her fiancé. So we've got six people all having home offices in one house, all on the same Wi-Fi, three dogs who are all becoming uh, canine doorbells every time somebody comes to deliver something, which is just about once every hour. So it's <laughs> loud and noisy and, and candidly in the midst of all of the... Uh, challenges and tragedy around us we're actually having a pretty good time well that's good i'm glad it's, uh it's good to have some company better more than less i think absolutely so joe what's on your mind most right now well you know we uh, have been in this process a little bit longer than a lot of other companies we're the largest law firm in wuhan china uh, we're in every single hot spot around the world the fastest growing law firm in italy we Denton's europe is actually in iran uh, we have uh, also just announced combinations in a lot of places that are perceived to have managed this better, like South Korea and New Zealand, which were both new combinations for us in 2019. So we started the process of dealing this in China early this calendar year. And what we're now, that means is we're early into the process of coming out of it in some places, seeing what it looks like to try to go back into the office. Uh, what this next new normal is like in these different communities and places as far flung as China or Europe uh, that are a little bit farther along the curve than the United States is. Right. And I I'm interested, what have you seen in some of these communities that are starting to, like you said, return to some sense of, of normalcy? Maybe not normal, but they are further along on the recovery path. What has that started to look yeah, it's, like? It, it's definitely not normal. It's next though, whatever is next, whatever we call it. And I think that we're finding is, is that in the midst of all of this human tragedy, of course, there have been a lot of very optimistic ways in which people uh, have reached out to each other and tried to build a better sense of community. And what you see is those who have uh, a little bit of emotional intelligence have more of it. Uh, those who maybe didn't even know what emotional intelligence is now recognize the importance of it. And so we see everyone having much more of a sense of community among the 19,800 and some people that make up our organization. But you also see some just plain, simple, practical things like people really aren't going back to the office. Uh, so in China, where we have multiple locations that are completely open now, we have 45 offices in China, not all of those provinces are actually completely open. But those that are, we've never actually had more than about 28% of our people back in the office at one time. Hmm. Even though we've disentangled and pulled apart all of the uh, modules uh, in offices, we've made hallways all one way. 
We have plexiglass shields set up. We have new ways in order to get up and down the elevators. We try to make it as safe as possible. We do obviously nightly cleaning and disinfecting in every office. But the reality of it is when people come into the office and half the people on their team are still on video, they say, well, why shouldn't I be on video? Uh, if they can drive their nice, beautiful car into the office and park underneath, but their support team has to take public transportation, they worry about their team. And then they worry about their own family if their team is taking the public transportation. So what right. you see is a high point where people come back into the office and then they start going, not coming back over and over again. So we all recognize that we're going to have to find ways to be able to deal with each other differently than our traditional office environments. And to be clear, were you saying that peak was about 28% in terms of about the max? 28% was the max. And again, this is in China where, uh, for example, that was in Shanghai where people tend to be uh, more compliant than they might otherwise. Right. The government encourages you to come in. If the a community is open, then you would be more likely to come in. So while uh, we anticipate that means that we will uh, be operating as we do now, and remotely, we like to call it you know, operating agilely. Our offices may be closed, but we're not closed. Obviously, all the services we provide, we do anyway. Anything our clients need, we can do, regardless of whether or not the physical office is open. But we think we're going to be operating this way for a long time period, and that through the many waves that are yet to come, uh, we'll have offices, again, that are used for some conference areas, but we're certainly not going back to any sense of normal like we were currently operating in our 185 offices around the globe. I, I heard a phrase last week that I think captured it perfectly, which is we're entering our new abnormal. Absolutely right. I like that too. Uh, so you, this is very interesting. You saw the peak at 28% and then things tailed off from there. You actually saw maybe a, an initial almost rush to get back to normal, get back to the office. Uh, and then as soon as people realize the realities of what this meant from a safety and health perspective, things declined from there. And I'm, I'm curious, wh wh where has it stabilized in a, in a place well, like Shanghai? It, yeah, it's different in every office. I don't have the most recent statistics, but in general, it's about one out of five people. Uh, okay. So roughly around 20% of people who feel comfortable coming to the office and obviously some come in, and, and what that means is coming in at all. So some people may be coming in just two days a week and rather than coming in you know, five days or six days a week in the process. It also uh, has a lot of underlying office dynamics that are uh, exacerbating other problems you already have. So schools are closed and we have part of a team coming in. Unfortunately, we found that uh, just uh, the underlying sexism that we see in many of our communities, more women working from home and the men coming in. Well, the men that are in the office obviously feel guilty about it. It's literally sexism on display in the right. office. And so they in turn say, look, this, is, you know, this, this isn't right. And so they're less likely to come in because their team is not there to begin with. And they don't want to be perceived as somehow superior because they're in the office when others feel that it's not safe. And also, of course, you, everyone's concerned about their family. So if you're coming in, but your colleagues are not coming in, then you begin to question your own judgment about whether or not you should be there. So you just see the psychology being very different than I think many people thought it would be, where it is uh, going to take quite a while for a majority of the people, particularly in white collar professions like the law, and I think we're seeing the same numbers in accounting and business consultants and others, to feel that they really should come back into the office. Uh, I think also, frankly, we've got the practical reality that people are uh, doing, uh, you know, pretty well at home. 
but there's lots of challenges and what we do for a living is something that you do not have to physically be present in order to actually provide the service. And so since the service is being provided, people are billing hours and finishing projects and being able to assist their clients without having to take the commute into the office, uh, they're feeling more comfortable as each day goes by, just continuing to do it as they are currently doing. It's, it's really interesting with this perspective across all of your global offices, you've almost got a, a time travel capability where you can see how things are going to progress and maybe have a view of how things will progress in, in areas like the U.S. where things are a bit further behind the curve. And, and to take us all the way back stateside, I, I'm wondering, can you describe what the first couple of months of the, the pandemic have looked like for, for Dentons and what sending people home looked like initially? and maybe what some of your most significant learnings have been over the last couple of months. Absolutely, and uh, there, there are learnings that we continue to relearn and sometimes change what we think we've learned in the process as well. So Denton's uh, obviously had uh, some upsides, other firms did not. We're the first of the big global firms that was formed you know, after we all have cell phones in our purses in our pockets. And so it was a firm that was built on a technology base. The VTA clients, VTI client survey called us the technology titan because we've invested more money in technology than the other law firm in the world. So we had an opportunity uh, that others might not, where other firms were used to uh, walking down the hallway in order to build a team to produce revenue. By definition, if you have 185 offices in uh, 83 countries around the globe, you are already working uh, via Zoom, via Blue Jeans, via video conference for so much of what we do already. So we're, we're used to that, we were set up for that. We had, because of our experiences in China, uh, early the United States reached out and put together home access kits for all the support personnel, uh, purchasing uh, several thousand uh, laptops as well as uh, cameras and other activities to making sure we had more Cisco licenses and Citrix licenses in order to have our support staff work from home. We had the benefit of learning from China by doing that. And so for Denton's, it was probably an easier move to work remotely than it might be for other firms, both because we had that experience and because of the fact that we were farther along the curve from a technology standpoint. So because of that, we were able to put together a series of wave decisions uh, where we first uh, tried to limit uh, the teams that were in office locations by splitting them in half, and then went into obviously different modes of working where we had fewer and fewer people in the offices. So in no time did we completely close the office. We don't have a single office anywhere in the United States. We have 33 that is completely closed. They are all open with permission by the office managing partner. And we keep technology staffs and others, again, they're on alternating days with mm -hmm. separate teams in order to be able to make sure that the firm can function as well as it possibly can. And I think that, again, having a little bit of advance notice, a little bit more investment in technology because we needed to, not because we were smart and foresaw things, but because we're a global law firm and therefore we rely more on this technology, rely more on revenue being produced from people that can't actually walk down the hall and talk to each other in person. They have to be on video conference. All of those things put us, I think, in a better position for these waves of uh, working remotely. So it's, it's interesting. You found that the technology infrastructure that you had to put in place to have almost 200 global offices collaborate effectively together really extended pretty seamlessly to having 
all 19,000 employees working in a distributed work from home environment. You're absolutely right. And if you think about, obviously, um, those law firms that have not made the investments in technology have not you know, followed, obviously, a lot of the trailblazing that you, Jack, and your company have been doing and your entities have been focused on. You know, I think that they're all in worse positions. I mean, I think that fundamentally that digitizing debtons, as I like to talk about it, uh, was a project that we did that for efficiency and because of the fact that we wanted people to build teams, even though those teams were operating in multiple time zones all across the globe. What that meant was when this pandemic hit is we just continued doing what we were doing before. It just wasn't a dramatic change. I mean, so literally I'm speaking to you today uh, from a, a, a microphone and a camera that's been sitting in my office for four years. Right. Um, because this is how I operate all the time. I have to be able to operate in different time zones. And that means that I want to go home and have dinner with my wife and kids, and then I get back on the phone because it's morning in Australia. Right. Uh, and so I have to be able to do these things. And the same is true of our leadership and our partners and now our support staff all across the globe. They've always had to be able to work from home because of the difference in time zones. I'm curious, you've had this phenomenal technology infrastructure to lean on as we've made the transition uh, to work from home in a highly distributed environment. Have you found there's been more human and and almost people related changes in terms of of how you manage a remote team? The the technology is one piece of the equation, but of course, especially I think the intra office communications that might have depended on those water cooler conversations or those chair swivel conversations that that just can't happen in a distributed environment. How have you seen people navigate that and 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 move to a, a different maybe communication style than they, they would have had had they been in person in an office? Well, I, I mentioned emotional intelligence early right. on. Uh, early last year, we put together a program we call Next Talent. And what Next Talent is about is trying to determine and find how each one of our team all across the globe can literally flourish. You know, the fundamental challenge with most law firms is they were all based on this old-fashioned triangle that was up and out. Uh, it was about essentially having young lawyers and other young members of the team compete against each other to get to the next level, whatever it may be. You know, as if some people were just better than others at the practice of law or what used to be imagined as the practice of law. The real goal for an organization should be to try to find out exactly what talent every single person has and make sure you can support that person so that that talent can flourish. Uh, we're obviously dealing we with a lot of really smart people who have succeeded from you know, kindergarten on up. And it's not that someone is a better lawyer than someone else. They just might be better at some portion of what we think of as law as someone else. So our goal is to try to retain everyone, not an up and out policy, but find where it is that people are best situated. What talents do they have? How can we make those talents flourish? And for the first time now, we're dealing uh, in an era where we have brain science. Uh, we have obviously behavioral science. We have behavioral economics. We have data-driven ways we can look at how do you actually support people so that they can flourish, they can really thrive, whatever the circumstances they're under. That was the project that we began in January of last year. And it's really put us in, I think, in a better position to have conversations, particularly amongst our leadership, about how to manage people in a different set of circumstances. When suddenly 
you're not in person. You can't easily pick up all the clues you pick up from people who often are speaking in a language which is not their first language. They've grown up in a, with a very different background and a very different experience. And so therefore it becomes more difficult when you're dealing with them on this flat screen opposed to in person. So what we're trying to do is teach people how to pick up those same cultural clues, uh, but to do so obviously uh, remotely and through video or on the telephone in ways that before they might be doing in person. And that's a complex process. It's one that we're deeply engaged in right now. And obviously since you're dealing particularly with lawyers who are about as cynical as anybody can be, you have to really show them the data, show them the brain science, show them the behavioral economics data uh, to be able to demonstrate that we really can work together to find ways so that each of us can thrive and whatever your professional ambitions may be, you can meet them by us all supporting each other better. Right. Um, it, it's uh, very interesting that you found a data-driven approach to be an effective one for driving this this behavioral change in turn in uh, in lawyers. And you're, you're starting to see success with that. Uh, can, can you maybe talk about some of the, the changes you've seen on the ground through this, through this effort? Well, what we're trying to do is we're trying to build trust you know, through virtually. So there's a lot of science and data, as you know, on virtual trust. How do you build the kinds of relationships that people are able to develop when they just spend time with each other and naturally begin to trust each other more, trust their judgment, uh, and, and, and find ways when they spend time with each other to not interpret what they say uh, inappropriately or incorrectly. Right. Uh, the biggest challenge, as you know, through the video is, is that uh, it tends to not only literally be flat, but people often take what one says flat. And, you, and you're often able to get uh, a, a wrong impression. People tend to you know, have a burst of, of, uh, of excitement and can challenge what people say because they're not listening or hearing the nuances. And they start uh, imagining people as being more aggressive than they might actually be. So there's a lot of data that shows, again, on video conferences, people can tend to be more aggressive. And so you help people learn how to do that, learn how to be a little cooler in a cooler media, uh, and how to better and, uh, manage the medium uh, of what is fundamentally television. I mean, we're all dealing now with television uh, as, a, as a metaphor uh, and how it is that we interact with each other and how not to become a television character, but but like all, frankly, really good television characters to simply be authentic and uh, to right. be who you really are. And that, that's, that is an art form because so many people, you put a camera in front of somebody and they change, right, is what it comes down to. It's not yeah. just that the camera adds 10 pounds, as I like to say. It's that the camera changes, makes people self-conscious, right, that they become uh, something other than they really are and they lose that sense of informality and authenticity that you can get if you're yeah, those are uh, really important observations, and I think your comment around around trust, which, which is hard enough to build in person, it's just uh, a whole other set of challenges to do it remotely. But I think thinking really deliberately about it um, and and being conscious of it is 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 really really important. So, Joe, let's let's shift gears a little bit to to the planning for the the next phase. You and the firm's leadership are working to chart uh, a course forward, uh, a path forward in, in what is completely unprecedented territory. I'm curious, how are you approaching this? Uh, and, and how is that plan shaping up, especially when you look at, at the global basis that the firm is operating on? Well, the first thing that I began was really uh, an empirical study, looking at the data 
of those organizations that came out of the last three global economic crises is better than they went into it. So if you think about this, we have a very uh, simple mission, simple at least to talk about, hard to do, which is that we wanna come out of this crisis better than we went into it. We have seven key performance indicators that we look at, and we're gonna be better on each one of them when we come out of the crisis than we went into them. And they include the obvious things like increasing profitability, but we know we get there by increasing diversity and inclusion. We get there by making sure we have a more positive impact on the communities in which we live and which we work. So we're trying very hard to make sure that third-party indicias of corporate social responsibility and other things that other people perceive as values are not actually just values in our firm, but are core to our business strategy. All of those things, there's empirical data to show that the companies that came out of these last crises is better than went into them did well in. So we have 27 different studies that are come from everything from the Harvard Business Review to European universities that look again at different types of companies and how they did in the crisis back in 91, the one uh, obviously early in the 2000s and the last from 2008 to 2012. And we're really focused on what we think are 15 traits of those companies that succeeded during those times. Either their market cap went up, their profitability went up, the market position was dramatically improved, and looking hard at what we think they did during that time period. That, that's the immediate response was all consuming. We're now working through recovery. But as we really look to perennity, what is, how do we sustain, obviously, improvement as we go forward, we think that empirical data is going to be key. Uh, I can't tell you what the answer to those questions are, since that is very much uh, in process. But we do believe, again, dealing with lawyers who are uh, more cynical than the average human. Some argue lawyers aren't quite even human sometimes. <laughs> They're clearly more cynical because they are trained, obviously, to look at every statement that's made and you know, tear it apart and try to turn it upside down and be able to verify any data that you have. Looking at that empirical data to put ourselves in a better position as we go forward. Some of those things are, are, are kind of self-evident. Uh, those companies that stuck to their strategy, they may have changed tactics, but stuck to their big strategy, clearly did better. Those companies that continued to make investments in innovation and technology did a lot better from 2008 to 2012 than those that did not. And 91% of the companies that were bigger in 2012 than they were in 2008, uh, or more profitable, even if they were not bigger, had some significant M&A activity during that time period. They didn't crawl under a desk and hide. They continued to find inorganic growth as a way in order to move organic growth. Very interesting. Uh, are, are there other traits, for these 15 traits you mentioned that, that the most successful companies emerging from these pre, previous crises shared? Are, were there any other traits that you think apply especially to, to law firms as they're thinking about navigating this crisis? Well, obviously law firms are uh, different as uh, McKinsey has recently pointed out than a lot of other organizations. They tend to do better during these types of global economic crises because we have so many counter cyclical ways to make money. Obviously bankruptcy restructuring practices, for example, the healthcare regulatory practices right now, those are examples of things that will be very strong. Uh, obviously, law firms are also different based uh, on the amount of the sectors they focus on. If you know you were only a healthcare tech company, you might be doing fine. If you were a law firm that focused on cruise lines and travel alone, you probably would not be. But what we find is it's also geographically oriented. 
uh, at least in the last couple of crises, which I, I believe this one will be different, but there were different patterns from a geographic standpoint. Those law firms, for example, that were very financial institution-based in New York City did worse than more general practice firms out in the middle of the country did. This is a different type of crisis because it's not just a financial crisis. It is obviously, we're, we're seeing uh, really high unemployment rates and much more dramatic hits in places like Texas or in Oklahoma, you know, the energy hits. But we're also just seeing massive unemployment all across the United States. So I'm not so sure that the geography will be as predominant in this global crisis as it was in the last one. But, but even when you look at all of those things, the, the key uh, for law firms that did well in the last crisis was one, they grew. They continued to make investments in people. Uh, and two, they were able to maintain their pricing. So there's going to be a tremendous amount of downward pressure on pricing, whether it's per project, per hour, however you charge. And law firms that have found ways to push back on that and maintain their pricing are going to be the ones that will do the best over the next four years. And again, it, it, those law firms that were able to maintain their pricing the best between 2008 and 2012, not surprisingly, ended up having the highest increase in revenue per lawyer in RPL, a number that's pretty hard to manipulate when you look at it, uh, than any other firm. So we have a project, Project uh, Evolution, where we literally have taken a part of the AMWA 200, focused again on who improved their RPL between 2008, 2012, and then on a two-year basis, 10 to 12, 12 to 14, 14 to 16, and then we in turn go back and look at the media on each of those firms that either are in the bottom 10% or the top 10% and look at what they did. Uh, we also do headcount by practice group on each of those two years to see if there's dramatic changes. And not surprisingly, you'll find that those firms that took advantage of the financial crisis by hiring in more corporate and transactional and banking finance lawyers are the ones that were able to ratchet up and improve so much better in 10 to 12 and then 12 to 14. So if you look at three firms, for example, that had the highest increase in revenue per lawyer uh, during uh, the 2008 to 2012, Kirkland & Ellis, Latham & Watkins, and Skadden, each of them actually increased the percentage of corporate and transactional banking and finance lawyers during that time period. So while others were laying those people off because they did not have enough work, those three firms, which obviously had dramatic improvements in their market position and their brands, I think we'd all agree that those are three successful law firms, they were hiring the very people that everyone else was laying off. Uh, and clearly that's a, a lesson to all of us to be very cautious uh, about a particular transactional-oriented practices. This, this feels like the law firm version of Warren Buffett's famous quote about, you know, be, be buying when everyone else is selling and selling when everyone else is buying. It's, a, it's an opportunity amidst exactly. what many others look at as a, a, a crisis and a time to, to shed roles and, and downsize. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think we'll see a lot less of it in this economic crisis because I think everyone saw that as well. Uh, and other, and it's not just firms that we think are the high profile firms. So if you look at King and Spalding, that's a firm that dramatically increased the percentage of corporate and transactional lawyers in their firm. And they had a big jump in revenue per lawyer. A lot of the Texas uh, and Houston based energy firms, which had such a tough time in 2008 to 2012, did very well in 12 to 14. Again, if they picked up 
energy lawyers, particularly the corporate and transaction lawyers during that time period. So I think uh, most law firms have learned their lesson. They're going to be much slower uh, to give up whole practice areas as well. Uh, and we'll try to hang on to that talent. So I'm, I'm curious, Joe, if we turn our attention now to your, your clients, you've got a, a unique perspective, a global perspective on how your, your clients are being impacted by this crisis. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious what some of your observations on that front might be. Are there some commonalities across the, the geographies? And what are you seeing emerge as some of the, the primary challenges your, your clients are facing around the world? Well, I think as, as so many people have said, that the one thing you can feel this current crisis is doing is simply accelerating trends that were already happening. So right. it's not that there's a sudden right turn or left turn. It's merely accelerating what was already happening. So two big trend lines clearly have accelerated more in the past 60 days than they did the six years before. One, which is consolidation. Uh, it is just very difficult to have 50 to 70 to 100 law firms if you're a big company. You need to consolidate. You want to consolidate not only to have more leverage to get better pricing, but when you start making changes, and every company is making more changes right now than they ever have before, you simply don't have time to educate 75 law firms on what your strategy is. And therefore, you're going to see this movement to consolidation, which obviously tends to mean larger law firms. Law firms are going to get bigger, and they're going to get bigger a lot faster because the clients want to consolidate. Secondly, you see a trend line to specialization. Uh, when I started my career uh, on Wall Street uh, uh, more than 30 years ago, you could be a generalist, a generalist corporate lawyer, for example. Today, clients want to make sure that they have a lawyer who's done that particular type of transaction or solved that particular dispute a thousand times. They want to make sure she has seen it over and over again as well. And you find that happening in smaller communities with smaller clients very, very quickly. So again, when you're making a lot of changes, when the risks are higher and the stakes are higher, you're much more likely to want to turn to someone who is a specialist than you would to someone who you simply trust because you've known them a long time. So those trend lines are accelerating unbelievably fast. And of course, they intersect with each other. If, you are trying, if you're consolidated and having fewer law firms, but you need to have people who have more specialties, it becomes more and more difficult for a mid-sized law firm to be able to meet both those trends. And so we're seeing smaller clients moving to larger firms. Again, conversely, you're seeing that actually that in general, general counsels will say they like the smaller to medium-sized firms. Those are the firms that they think they have a better relationship with as well. So I think this third trend line is how do you make a big firm feel small is going to be the one we're going to spend a lot of time talking about in the future. Are, are you seeing COVID-19 accelerate those, those trend lines? Is that a fair statement? Yes, absolutely. I mean, again, the, the one thing the crisis clearly does is it doesn't make dramatic changes, but it accelerates pre-existing trends. So if there's a pre-existing trend to digitalization, clearly this is jumped. If there was a pre-existing trend of people needing to be able to work more because of different time zones from their home, this is accelerating it. But it has dramatically accelerated the need for consolidation. We see significantly more panel requests where they want fewer law firms to handle more things in more places. And it clearly has accelerated the need for specialization, where a client will simply say, I want the person who's done this a thousand times before. 
I had a, a, a conversation with the CEO who said, look, I'm not going to go to a surgeon who's done that surgery once or twice. I want to make sure that she's done it a thousand times right. and that she also has that computer assisted robotic arm to do the surgery. So this third trend line is, is that people want their law firms to have more technology than they had before. And they want to go to the law firm that is more technology proficient. So consolidation, specialization, technology that particularly supports your processes in order to be put you in better position, all that's accelerating quickly. And John, I'm curious what you've heard from on the client side as well, if you've heard any initial responses in terms of what the, um, what their experience in dealing with Denton's lawyers has been in, in their work from home environments, if they've found any, any positive impacts from this, uh, from this new normal? Well, they have. I mean, first off, I think in general, they feel everyone's easier to get a hold of. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're less likely to miss somebody uh, on a cell phone because they're traveling, for example, or it's easier right. to schedule a meeting because you're not traveling. If you just think about the amount of time that all of us spend in planes, trains, and automobiles, uh, and you take that away, you suddenly have a lot more time to be able to deal with your client. Now, on the other side, people have more family obligations that are taking more time. Right. I think that's what they're really focused on. I mean, what, people are much less interested in will the office reopen than will, can I get my kids back to school? Uh, can I make sure I can get a dog walker here to take care of the dog? Right. right? Have the food delivered so I don't have to do as much cooking. Those are the things that I think that actually put more stress on people than whether the office is open or not open. Joe, you touched on this earlier, but you, you wrote a great editorial for The Hill talking about how returning to the office can really highlight, and, and this push to return to the office can really highlight some of the significant income inequality uh, that, uh, that law firms and other organizations have. C can you just talk a little bit more about the perspective you offered in that editorial? What I'm always worried about is, is that both uh, we who work in white collar professions in the media that we tend to speak to and the media that is writing are focused all on thinking about work as something that happens in an office. And so by definition, we wonder, can we get back to a place where it's more convenient to be able to do what we do, but not required? For those who are our first responders that are uh, not in an office, they're in a police station or a fire station, or they're working from an ambulance, taking people to a hospital, and they work at a hospital or a pharmacy. They don't work at an office. If they're involved in manufacturing, they're working in a factory or they're working in a warehouse or a distribution center to hand something off at the post office in order to be delivered. So this concept of going back to the office only deals with a small sliver of our economy, admittedly the fastest growing sliver of our economy. But what it forgets about is, is that it is literally a white collar privilege to have this question of whether or not I'm going back to the office to work or I'm staying at home to work. There are right. so many people who can only work and can only generate an income for their families by actually going someplace that's closed. So again, having the emotional intelligence to understand that I think is really important for lawyers because obviously we have people who are part of our teams who it's hard for them to do their job if they're not physically in the office as well. And so those are the kinds of concerns we've got to be very conscious of as we, as we uh, you know, again, go into this next new normal or this new abnormal, whatever it may be that follows, is we have to understand that this is laying bare the challenges of income inequality all across our country. Absolutely. And 
Joe, when you step back and look at your, your global offices, you look at this eventual transition to some sense of, of, of normalcy, what kind of time frame are you exploring for, uh, for that return? And we, we talked about this earlier, we're not returning to normal, we're returning to right. some significantly shifted new reality. Spend a few moments talking about what that new reality looks like sure. and, and what kind of rough time frame you think we're on for in for? Well, I think the first thing it's most important for all of us to recognize is that no successful organization ever goes back. So we don't go back to the office. We don't go back to work, right? We're always going forward. So the question to us is what does forward look like? What does the future look like and feel? And we know that it's going to be different and we're trying to diagnose as much about what we think the challenges are in order to be able to provide the service that we call law and then more importantly, to support our clients who are in every sector that you can possibly imagine and in every location you can possibly imagine. And recognizing those challenges are going to be different by sector and by location, we in turn also have to be willing and able to adapt to whatever that is. So here are some things, I, again, I think we know. Uh, and uh, some of it we've already touched on in this conversation, so I apologize by repeating. But one, we know that whatever trend line our client was faced with before, it's just accelerating. It's happening faster. And we have yep. less time in order to be able to advise the client and less time to consider changes in whatever the client's strategy that may have a legal impact. We've got to actually operate faster than we have in the past. We have to respond to the client faster than we have in the past as well if we have any chance of truly being you know, remaining in the boardroom uh, when all these big strategic conversations are going to be had. So again, and, that, and Joe, that, bef just yeah, to dig ahead. on that one point, I, I think it's an important one you've made. This maybe presents a new opportunity for a prospective law firms may be able to, to offer to their clients that are experiencing that accelerated transformation. If you do have a macro view across your broader client base that you can, you can share in terms of the lessons you've seen from similar clients in similar, uh, in the same industry or maybe even across industries. No, you're absolutely right, Jack. And again, I, I think what you're going to find is no matter what the size of law firm, that uh, our clients will have less patience. Uh, they are literally going to want to have answers faster uh, and with a higher degree of accuracy, with more specialization, uh, because they themselves are operating in a world where everything has accelerated itself. So the client is operating where everything's accelerated, change is happening around them much faster than it was before. And law firms, you know, first off, lawyers tend to not adapt to change as well as a normal human being does because of our training. You get a group of lawyers together and call it a law firm, that, that's even worse, that's even less likely to adapt to the change that's going on. And yet our clients are experiencing all of this change and expect us to react to it. So right. this disconnect between clients and law firms has the possibility of really growing and becoming more problematic if everyone who is at a law firm doesn't recognize my clients are moving a lot faster, I've got to move faster as well. Absolutely. And the opportunity here for law firms may be equipping themselves to handle questions and support their clients in ways that they, they've never had to in the past. Their clients are going to be looking to them with a completely new set of demands over the next series of months and, and likely series of years. No question about it. And that's why investments in innovation, investments in technology in order to assist you in your speed and accuracy uh, are going to be crucial. 
that means there's going to be more capital investments that law firms are going to have to make at the very time when their own economics is the most challenged. Uh, but again, that's one of those addition, uh, indicia of all of the companies that have succeeded in the past three global economic crises is they continue to make investments in innovation, investments in technology, investments in new processing, moving as to the cloud is just an example of that in order to be better positioned so they could ratchet back up uh, when the economies return. Joe, if we fast forward five years in the future and, and things have settled in, in some sense of the word, what do you think some of the, what do you think that landscape looks like? What are some of the, the permanent changes we've seen as a result of this crisis on the, the legal profession and, and our clients? Well, it's going to be digitized, Jack. That's the first thing, that the most successful practice of law will be more digital than those that are not. Uh, look, law firms of all sizes and all places are going to succeed. It's not that big firms are going to do better than medium size or medium better than small or vice versa. It's all going to be about the attitude that each of these organizations has and how much they embrace change, because that's the only constant is change here and accelerating change. So those that embrace change find ways to make investments in innovation and technology, being able to uh, find information and mine that data faster than others will be better positioned. And they'll be better positioned because their clients will see them as being more contemporary and they'll be able to keep up with their clients as their clients face all these new challenges that are coming at them rapid fire uh, in a way that they have not seen before. So I, I'm uh, very big on trying to encourage all firms to do that. Uh, it is not as if uh, one firm prospers by simply being better than the others. Uh, this is a, a, about playing tennis well. The best tennis player in the world needs a great tennis player on the other side. Uh, every single great litigator has got to have a great litigator on the other side. Every great corporate lawyer needs another great corporate transactionally on the side. So what I hope is, is that there are a group of firms that, that understand consolidation, understand specialization, understand investments in innovation, and that they rise above the current challenges just to make sure the product and the service we provide is better for the client. Joe, you've offered a super useful perspective on, on how transformation is happening in the legal industry, what some of the enduring impacts will be. Uh, I'm, I'm curious if you could leave us with a, a parting message, a final message, uh, speaking to our audience, either as legal professionals or or simply as human beings at this time? Well, Jack, obviously uh, people all across the globe are dealing with a set of tragedy uh, as well as personal challenge in a way that many of them have never done before. But in the midst of that, what I have found is a sense of optimism about the future and confidence in the future uh, as we all become survivors together of this process. Survivors not necessarily of the, the disease or the virus, but survivors of the economic challenges that we all have. And as survivors, we not only have remorse about what we've lost, uh, we recognize that we wish things were different than they were. We miss the uh, handshake that we could give or the hug that we could give someone. But we do have confidence in our ability and our resiliency in order to address this and all the other challenges that come forward. And that just natural sense of human optimism is what gives me, obviously, uh, the energy to get up every morning and go at this. And I hope it will for each and every one of the members of your audience as well. Well, it's a great note to end on. Thanks so much for joining us today, Joe, and uh, stay healthy. 
Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.